Hi Harvest, welcome. Uh, it is uh, good that we can still gather in this way, though I'm, I'm so looking forward to uh, when we get to reopen, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, this last week we had our food drive on Tuesday. Uh, if I'm honest, I was a little nervous. I didn't know I didn't know if people would remember. I didn't know if people would be able to come. Uh, we were pleasantly surprised with how many of you were able to stop by uh, and, and give food so that we could donate it to the Family Community Resource Center. And if you don't know where they are, they're in the Jack, Will, and Rob uh, building uh, that's near Hayes Freedom and Helen Baller Elementary near Doc Harris. Um, we were able to bless them, and I, I heard just this last week that across the nation uh, at food banks, the needs are up 70% um, compared to normal. Uh, so we're, we're really helping meet some needs in our community. My guess is that we will have another one of these within the next month or so because I think they're just flying through uh, food that people need right now. Uh, also, some of you already heard, but in case you haven't heard, uh, Katie Bafis, who many of you know, we've known Katie for years and years here at Harvest. Uh, Katie and Tyler are now engaged. Uh, Tuesday, Tyler popped the question. She said yes. Uh, so we are, we're very excited. We're celebrating with Katie and Tyler. Um, I did want to let you know, below our video, we have some links to uh, some things that we think are helpful for you to engage with our online service. Uh, each week, there are questions from the sermon there to help you further reflect or maybe even discuss uh, within your household. Uh, we have a connection card um, that helps us know who you are and, and how you are connected to Harvest or if you want to get connected. Uh, we'd love to find out about you in that way. Um, we, we also encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And it's not that we're trying to get uh, a ton of subscribers. Um, it's really just to help you uh, be able to find our videos as, easy, as easily and smoothly as possible. So if you subscribe, um, YouTube will send you an email every time we put up a new video. Uh, and a video that we just put up this last week had to do with reopening. If you are not aware, uh, our governor, uh, Jay Inslee, said this week that there is now an allowance in the state of Washington, even for counties that are in phase one, uh, like we are in, uh, to have outdoor church gatherings of up to 100 people. So um, obviously we weren't ready to do that this week. Um, but we are, we're working really hard to figure out everything we need to so that we can very soon meet together. So I'd encourage you, if you didn't watch that video, go ahead and, and watch that video. Um, and we're hoping that this next week we'll actually have a date for you uh, when we, we're shooting to reopen. Um, but one thing really important to that, and it's also in uh, the links below this video, we have a survey that we need filled out right away um, because we need to know who is planning on coming back back uh, when we open or when you're planning on coming back, as well as some other questions. We're going to need some volunteers to make all of this happen. So I'd encourage you to watch that video if you haven't. If you forgot to fill out the survey, now is your chance to do that. Um, let's pray right now before the sermon. Jesus, we love you, Lord. I thank you for the beautiful weather this week. Um, it, it was such a nice change to uh, the rain that we had, and, and the rain is it has made it hard as we're already trapped and, and, and not being able to get outside. 
um, and to nicer weather has been hard. So to have good weather this week, Lord, it, it has been a blessing. I think we've all felt that. Uh, Jesus, we are grateful that you are at work all over the globe. And we pray for our friends um, that are working overseas, trying to, uh, trying to have the opportunity to share about you, Jesus. And we, we pray that you would bless them. We pray that you would sustain them and encourage them. Lord, would you help us to remember our part in, in praying for them uh, consistently. Lord, I, I just I pray that you would help us to uh, really be intercessors uh, for our ministry partners all over the world. And right now, Lord, as we get ready to hear from your word, I pray uh, for Matt as he preaches. Spirit, would you fill him? Would you fill us as well as listeners? God, would we be ready to hear from your word? God, would we be hungry to hear from your word? And I know it is strange listening through a screen. Um, God, would you keep us from being distracted? Lord, would you help our hearts and our minds to really be tuned in now? It is in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here at Harvest. Thanks for joining us um, via virtual streaming, uh, a, a sermon online. If you're just joining us, welcome. Uh, thanks for tuning in. And we are diving into our series again in 2 Samuel, uh, the God of Reversals. And today we'll be in chapters 15 through 18. A little recap of where we're diving in this morning. So all of this, in, in, in these chapters, last week's chapters, even some of the chapters in the next couple weeks, all of this really comes back to David and Bathsheba, the sin um, that David committed there of, of taking a woman who was not his wife and then ultimately murdering Uriah as well. We saw last week that David's sins visited him again through his sons, uh, Amnon committing awful sexual sin with Tamar, and then Absalom, uh, Tamar's brother, killing Amnon in return. The same sins that David himself committed. And the weird part in this is, is David doesn't seem to discipline his sons in either instance. He's really passive and kind of lets these events happen and doesn't insert himself there. Five years end up going by with David not seeing Absalom. And then the end of last week, we see that Absalom kind of forces his way back into David's presence through manipulating Joab. And that's where we left off David leaning in and kissing Absalom, telling him ultimately that, that he's welcome back into the kingdom. As I was preparing for this week, I was thinking about villains, and I was thinking about the worst types of villains, or, or the scariest villains, and, and, and it, as you think about that, I wonder who comes to mind, if it's people like Darth Vader, or Emperor Palpatine, or maybe it's Voldemort, or the Joker, whoever it may be, if you just think about their appearance and their demeanor, um, what they show through their actions, all of it's really dark and evil and not good, and from a mile away, you can say, that person is a bad person, and is not a good guy. They are an enemy, right? Um, but as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about who, who truly is the worst villain or the worst enemy. And I thought of Gaston, which seems weird right off the bat. Why Gaston? He actually is not that scary. And, and maybe that's what makes him one of the worst villains of all. If we think about Gaston and his character in The Beauty and the Beast, he's attractive. So there's seemingly this like safe 
safety with him that, oh, he's not that scary, right? And that, that, that people are drawn to him through this. He's the life of the party for better or worse. He's the guy that people literally in the movie want to go to the bar and have drinks with. Um, he's he's a, a person who convinces others to join his cause. If you think about the movie, it's him that first wants to go and kill the beast, but then all of a sudden he has the whole town full of little people. The whole town, right, has joined his cause in this uproar to go and take out the beast. He's a man of the people in some regards, and yet at the same time, he's using them for his own agenda. I think the scariest kind of enemy is the one who convinces you that he's not all that bad, or that she's not all that bad, even convinces you that they're good. That on the outside, everything about them seems safe and secure, and yet they're twisting, manipulating, and forcing their own agendas to get, um, to get their evil schemes to come out. And our story today has that kind of villain, that kind of enemy in Absalom, who fits the same description as Gaston. Attractive, people drawn to him, convinces people to join his cause, but has his own agenda. Our truth statement or our big idea, if you're just joining us and and that word truth statement or that um, expression seems different to you, the big idea is the enemy seeks to steal hearts from the king, but the Lord will triumph over the enemy. The enemy seeks to steal the hearts from the king, but the Lord will triumph over the enemy. The breakdown kind of of, of how I've, I've arranged this sermon is I'm going to give you guys a summary. Um, it is four chapters, so I'm going to try to give bird's eye view what's happening in these four chapters. But I do encourage you to read them on your own, 15 through 18. There's so much good stuff here. The more time I spent in it, the more I could see it. Um, then we're going to look at the characters of Absalom and David. And we're going to kind of do a character analysis and and look at their arc through these four chapters. And in their arcs, we're going to see in both of them the brokenness of man, but the intervention of God. And then ultimately end, how we'll conclude is we'll see how this story points us to a greater one. A greater enemy than Absalom and a greater king than David. Let me pray um, before I dive into the summary for us. Lord, we, we thank you um, for these passages. God, I thank you just for all that, that through others, through just spending time with you by your spirit, all that you showed me. I pray that what I share this morning is helpful, that your word, word would go out, Lord, um, that we would know how to respond as your people, and that we would see you, Jesus, as the King, the Savior, that we truly need, that we wouldn't be surprised or or fooled by the enemy's schemes, Lord, but we would see them for what they are. In your name, amen. So let's start first with Absalom and kind of look at the brokenness of his character, the brokenness of man that's exhibited there, but then also God's intervention. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel. I'm going to start reading chapter 15, verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Right off the bat, there should be a couple things here that kind of catch, uh, catch our attention or catch us off guard. For one, 
Absalom's in a chariot, but for some reason he's having 50 men run in front of him. He's trying to get from point A to point B, but clearly he's not trying to, to choose the quickest way to do this. Because if he were in this day and age, if he was in his car and had 50 people running in front of him, he would get there very slowly. No, he wants to draw attention to himself. He's parading, right? That's the only other time we really see this where maybe there's cars or floats and there's people walking or running in front and it's a slow pace to catch people's attention, to draw attention to himself. Let's not forget in chapter 14, it went over Absalom's appearance, how attractive he was, his long locks. People were drawn to him already and there's some pride there for Absalom. He's, he's using what he knows to gain people's favor and attention himself, how he looks. He would be like a, a model or, or a, a movie actor, someone famous in this day and age. The other thing that should catch our attention is that he's riding in a chariot. Up until this point, from, from what I could see in Scripture, no king or prince in Israel had, had ridden in a chariot to this point. And this also should call us back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11, where Samuel, as, as the people have asked for a king, Samuel's warning them what this king will do. And this is what he says. This is what the king who will reign over you um, will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. So if the people had remembered Samuel's warning to them back when they first asked for a king and they got Saul, they're, they're, this prophecy now is coming to fruition through Absalom. This should be a marker that's like, uh-oh, this dude's making our sons run in front of him. We shouldn't follow him. But for whatever reason, people don't, either don't remember um, the words of God or have just shut them out entirely. Uh, Absalom, I just imagine him as a person in this day and age who on their social media accounts wants that blue check mark, right? He wants that, I'm famous, I'm certified that this is an account that you should follow. You should follow what I post, what I say. I want to influence you. We see further that people um, would bring complaints to the city, would bring complaints to the king, and Absalom uh, positions himself at the gate of the city to intercept these people as they're coming to the king with their complaints. He asks them where they're from and then automatically says that their complaints are valid. There's no description or indication that, that he asks actually what their complaint is and wants to do anything about it. But in that moment, he uh, doesn't address the complaint but gives this I kind of, I care for you. Oh, I, I, what you have to say is valid. Your truth is important. Um, and in Proverbs, it made me think of how wounds from a friend can be trusted, but kisses from an enemy multiply. And that's what Absalom's doing here. He's, he's sucking up to the people. He wants to get on their good side, right? So that they, um, they ultimately like him in return. We see this happening in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representation of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land. Then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me and I would see that he gets 
justice. He's planting seeds of doubt. The king doesn't have time for you. The king doesn't care about your complaints, doesn't care for you, doesn't know you from anyone else. He doesn't know you or care about you like I do. And this totally reminded me of the garden and the scene that we get there with Adam and Eve, the snake saying to Eve, did God really say that you'd die if you eat that fruit? He doesn't want you to be like him. If you eat that fruit, you'll gain knowledge that he, he's keeping from you. Seeds of doubt that ultimately cause Adam and Eve to not put their trust in God. And here Absalom's doing the same, trying to cause doubt in the people to not trust their king, David. Verse five, or chapter 15, verse 5 and 6. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom's goal is to steal the hearts, to steal the affections, to steal the allegiance of the people away from David and towards himself. It's like every rom-com, every romantic comedy movie where there's the two that are a couple or in love, but there's the friend on the outside that slowly but surely is making their way in, going after that girl or going after that guy and trying to draw them to themselves by planting seeds of doubt. Oh, they let you down that way? If I was your boyfriend or your girlfriend, I'd never let you down like that. If I were there for you, I would never hurt you too bad. That can't happen. And they're just weaseling their way in, trying to steal the affections. And the audience is like, come on, can't you see it? But the person that they're going after slowly but surely, they're more and more blind to their maneuvers and their heart is being stolen away. And we know this. There is a tug of war for our hearts. We can just see this in our day-to-day life with advertising, right? With, with merchandise, with, with agendas, with what people are putting out there on social media. People want others to join in their cause and what they love and what they care about. And we feel this tug of war of, of where is my allegiance going to be? Maybe now in the season that we're in more than ever and these things or these people often try to convince that they'll care for us like no one else can or no one else ever will. Verses 7 and 10, through 10 of chapter 15. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. We see here Absalom keeping up appearances with his dad. He's going to him saying, I've made this vow to God that I will worship him when I returned. Can I go to Hebron to do this? But we've never seen Absalom have any devotion to the Lord before this, and we won't see him have any devotion to the Lord after this. 
He's like I was when I was growing up. I knew the right things to say to my parents to please their ears. I knew how to say what I was learning at youth group or that I'd go to church with them on Sunday and yet living this separate life altogether filled with sin. And I'd tell them what they wanted to hear so I could get away with more, so I could gain their trust, ultimately to, to, to betray their trust behind their back and lead my own life. He then gathers all these people who know nothing about this conspiracy, 200 people together with him in Hebron to be there as he's announced as king. And it doesn't quite dive into this, into the passage of what exactly goes down, but how I imagine it is as Absalom's announced king and these people are there as this is happening and kind of like, what's going on? But they join in in the conspiracy as others are starting to shout, Absalom is king in Hebron, they just join in with it. They're swept up in the wave. The current just takes them right in. And next thing they know, they're announcing Absalom is king too. And they're rebelling against King David. Conveniently, um, this is also the place where David was first anointed king after the fall of Saul. I think that Absalom is a great strategist, that he is using all these things from the past, trying to gain favor and trust from people so that they believe everything that he's doing is on the up and up. And yet, at the same time, they're quickly, quickly being swept up into a conspiracy to be rebelling against King, King David, the anointed one of God. And how easy it is for us to be swept up when we place our trust in the wrong person or the wrong thing, where one second our allegiance is somewhere else, we make one or two bad decisions, placing our trust in the wrong thing, and we end up in a totally different camp than we ever thought we were going to be. But thankfully, um, God doesn't stay on the sidelines in this story. God did speak through Nathan, the prophet, to David that the sword would never leave his house. And we saw that as Amnon died due to Absalom killing him. But now we see it as Absalom's coming against David. Uh, a son coming against a father. This isn't just some other ruler who's trying to overthrow David. This is his own flesh and blood, the one that, that brought him life and brought him into this world and helped raise him. That's who's opposing David. But this betrayal from his son is still directly linked to David's sin with Bathsheba. And even though it seems everything is falling apart, God doesn't just stay in the background. He doesn't just kind of let all this happen and say, David, you're getting what you deserve. He intervenes. There's a reversal that takes place. Absalom seeks out advice after David and his followers end up fleeing Jerusalem of how can I complete my victory? And he asks two men um, for advice. The first is a man named Ahithophel. That's fun to say. Um, and he just so happens to be Bathsheba's grandpa. Very interesting that that's who he chose to be the man to give him advice and that he was so quick to turn on King David. 
The main gist of these four chapters is not family drama and, and the brokenness in families, but it's definitely there. It's definitely one of the themes that we see throughout David's life. When, when unresolved sin and hurt takes place in families, it's crazy how much hurt and baggage just continues with that. There's places in these chapters where cousins are murdering other cousins, and it just continues throughout the rest of 2 Samuel as well. That the sin in a family can be such a destroyer. Undealt with sin, unresolved forgiveness can be such a deadly killer in families. Ahithophel instructs Absalom that he should attack and kill David now. While he's weak, while he's on the run. His main idea is one man should die, only King David should die, and that will save many. But then Absalom seeks the advice from another man named Hushai, who actually is a mole sent by David to both infiltrate Absalom's thinking process and to frustrate the advice of Ahithophel. He was actually an answer to David's prayer when David calls out to God and says, God, will you intervene and frustrate the advice of this man Ahithophel? And then next thing you know, David's confronted with Hushai, and he's the one that goes and his advice to David is to wait, to build up Absalom's, or his advice to Absalom, sorry, uh, is to wait, to build up his forces, then attack. And cleverly, he also does some stroking of Absalom's ego in it, that Absalom should be out with the armies and to be the one that goes out and destroys David, taking him head on and, and taking him out completely, that the victory would be his. It's no surprise because of Absalom's pride that he follows Hushai's advice. We see this in chapter 17, verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice, advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice, good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. We see that the Lord isn't on the sidelines, but he is at work saving his people from evil and letting Absalom bring destruction upon himself. Since Absalom follows Hushai's advice, um, he goes out to meet David's army. And we see this in chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree, which would be a very strange sight to see. But as Absalom thinks he's about to have this great victory over David, as he's riding in, in, in the forest, his head, his moneymaker, right? His face, um, his long flowing locks are caught in the tree. And, and some commentators say maybe it was his actual hair caught in the branches, right? And how, um, how just of a fate would that have been for Absalom in so many ways. But also some say most likely that wouldn't have held him up there. And that maybe his neck just got caught between two branches. Either way. There, there is total irony here that's taking place 
for Absalom. He's not defeated by my men here. He's defeated by the Lord's creation. He's stuck. All the control that he had sought to gain is gone in an instant. He's completely helpless. David had instructed his commanders of his armies uh, to not harm Absalom if they were to confront him in battle. But we go to chapter 18, verses 14 through 16, to see what happens. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up large, a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. Absalom is killed by Joab and is buried like a criminal, despite David wanting him not to be harmed. Pride truly comes before the fall in this story. And it's a picture that God humbles kingdoms that oppose his own. And we, like Absalom, try to set up our own kingdom at times, sometimes fully knowing it's opposing God, and others were unaware until God reveals it to us. And I wonder... If we, like Absalom, during this time, this season of the pandemic, where we've sought to have all this control, we've felt helpless like him. We've felt like everything that we worked towards, everything that we we fought so hard to have control over in our lives, has been ripped out from under us like a rug. And have we been humbled? Has our little kingdoms been humbled in this time? Because ultimately those kingdoms were in opposition to God's kingdom, God's kingdom ways that he wants us to live in now. That's where we'll leave Absalom for the moment, but let's look at David, both again seeing the brokenness of man, but God's divine intervention. So when Absalom, tracking back now in our story, was made king in Hebron, we see David's response in chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. David knows that if the people's hearts are with Absalom, they are in big trouble. Going on to verse 23 of 15. The whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by. The king, David, also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the desert. Now, the Kidron Valley um, is really important in this story, and it's actually important in other places in Scripture as well. And, and hopefully we have a, a picture through editing that's going to come up here to kind of show you uh, where the Kidron Valley is. So you should be able to see the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, where David lived. So as him and his followers are fleeing from Absalom, they go down the side of the slope where, where the Kidron Valley is, that little almost like road, dirt, 
path down there and they'd cross over that and as they go up out of the valley they're actually going into the Mount of Olives and beyond that would be the wilderness or the desert. But further on we see in chapter 17 22 that this actually this moment calls us back to something in Israel's history before David's time. Look at 17.22 with me. So David and all the people with him set out and crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. Crossing the Jordan was a huge moment for Israel's people back in, in the book of Joshua. Crossing the Jordan, when that takes place, they, they sent out the priests with the, with the ark and the waters parted. And then all of Israel, for the first time, crossed over into the promised land. Now, though, we see a, a really despairing moment with David and God's people. They're fleeing the promised land, crossing through the Kidron Valley, then crossing the Jordan, leaving the promised land. And the people, as they see David doing this, and the people, they're weeping. This is David who killed Goliath. This is David who had defeated all his enemies. And now this is David seemingly with his tail between his legs, fleeing from battle. That the anointed king had failed. The one that they thought potentially was the savior. The one that God had chosen to, to make them a great nation is leaving. Not only that, but leaving, crossing the Jordan and going back out into the wilderness where their people spent 40 years before they entered the promised land. And the witnesses seeing this and the readers reading this would be distraught. Why is this happening, God? Let's look at verse 30 of chapter 15. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too, and were weeping as they went up. There was total sorrow and despair in this moment. A man of sorrows as he leaves, knowing how, how much of this downfall is attributed to his own sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah that he now is battling against his own son. As they're leaving, though, before they head up to the Mount of Olives, the priests are bringing the ark with them, similar to when Israel's people crossed the Jordan the first time. But David, in verses 25 and 26, stops them in chapter 15. This is what happens. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes... He will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. This sounds like a different David in so many ways. This isn't, um, in some ways, some people could read this and, and be like, man, David's being really passive here. Kind of just, well, whatever happens, God will have happen. But I think there's something deeper going on here with David. David, I think there's a humility that's taking place with him that he now sees when he took things into his own control, everything went wrong. 
And he knows that the Lord is in control and that the Lord can deal with him justly because he is a sinful man, a broken man. And if the Lord sees it right, he will bring David back to Jerusalem. They continue their journey to the wilderness and we see more of this side of David as they're met with more opposition by a man named Shimei in chapter 16, starting at verse 5. As King David approached Behurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, son of Zeria, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Never a good way to solve problems. But the king said, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeria? If he is cursing because the Lord said this to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, who is my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with the good for the cursing I am receiving today. Shimei comes out from the family, the line of the tribe of Saul, accusing and humiliating David, calling him a man of blood, throwing rocks at him. Just the ultimate um, jeerer, right? The, the person at the, the sporting event that just takes things way too far. And his accusations against David are interesting because they're both correct in some ways and wrong in others. David, as far as it concerns Saul's house, had shown nothing but kindness and mercy. Many times he had the opportunity to take Saul's life, as we read back in 1 Samuel, and didn't and spared him. His best friend was Jonathan, and even after Jonathan and Saul are dead, he shows kindness and mercy to Mephibosheth. So he showed love to Saul's house. But David was a man of blood in another sense, as Shimei says, because concerning Uriah, he had killed an innocent man for his own gain. David, up until this point, has been known to be vindictive to those who are guilty, even remembering several weeks ago when some of his men are humiliated by a, a, another people and how David goes out to destroy them. But here again, we see a different David, as this man hurls rocks, as he calls down curses, as he calls him a man of blood, David stops Abishai from going out and killing him. And I think it's because David knows he's guilty. He's broken. And he's been humbled by God through his sin. As he's turned to God, he knows that he's just as guilty to be killed. And God has shown him mercy. He's also open to this being from God, even believing that this was straight up sent from God to call this down upon him. 
And in that, he, he hopes that if this is from God, that that same God will show him mercy and compassion. He's calling on God's very nature. We see a total trust that David has in, in God during these circumstances. He know it didn't go well when he took control, when he took Bathsheba for his own, when he took Uriah's life. So now what he's calling upon, what he's relying on, what he's entrusting himself to is that God is truly in control and he will follow, he will place his trust in God. Are we trusting in God in our present circumstances? Are we trying to gain control any way that we can as it feels like the rug has been pulled out from under us? Or are we stepping back, trusting that the Lord is still the Lord, that he's gracious and compassionate, that he's good, and are we trusting that he's the God that will continually save us? Because Absalom follows Hushai the mole, David's mole, his advice, David and his men um, have some time to recover because Absalom doesn't attack right away. And before they go to battle, David instructs his commanders to be gentle with the young man Absalom for his sake. We see here the love of a father. And it's a greater picture of the father's love, of God our father's love to not deal with our sins as they deserve. Just as David here wants Absalom to be taken care of, to not be killed for what he's done, but to be brought back to him with hopes, I think, for a happy ending of sorts of reconciliation that could take place. But Joab, one of these commanders who hears this instruction from David, has a bone to pick with Absalom, and he and his men kill Absalom brutally as Absalom is there hanging in the tree. David is, is waiting in the wilderness for news about the battle and is hoping for good news. And my guess is there's maybe some denial that's going on here, that, that there, there is a way that Absalom could come out of this, that there's hope for this happy ending. And as he's waiting for this news, two runners are coming towards the city, and all the while David is hoping that they're both bringing good news of the battle. And the first runner comes to David and says, it's good news. We won. But he doesn't have any news about the state of Absalom. The second runner, however, gives a little bit different um, news to David. We see this in verse 32 and 33 of chapter 18. The second runner, the Cushite, the king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Several commentaries state that it's hard to try to put into words the grief, the loss that David is experiencing as he says his son's name over and over and says, My son, my son, if only I had died in your place. 
Not only is he, is he grieving the loss of his son, but he's ridden with guilt. He knows that this is all due to what has taken place in his life with Bathsheba. That this is the fleshing out of what God said would happen when the sword would never leave his house. How things could have been different if David had turned away when he saw Bathsheba and turned to the Lord and repented for the temptation that he was about to give in to. Sin is a destroyer. It leaves us in the wake of its destruction. And we can't save ourselves from it, just as Absalom and David both couldn't. Yet we see here in this moment an undeserved love that David has for Absalom. And it's weird because justice does take place in the story. The villain, the enemy, is killed. The son of the king, killed in a tree, thrown in a pit, buried with rocks. But the king isn't rejoicing. Even though he's won the victory, he's left weeping, knowing that his son has caused this snowball effect and left us with this bitter end. And this leaves us longing for a better resolution, a better Savior, and a love that can truly save. And that's why this story points us to a bigger story, a story that each and every one of us needs. Because we too have an enemy who seeks to steal our hearts from the true King. We see this enemy first show up in the garden, the snake that spreads seeds of doubt for Adam and Eve to lose faith, lose trust, to doubt that their God is truly good and perfect all the time. For me, as I got into this passage more, I, I think that there's no coincidence how in chapter 14 we get into so much of Absalom's appearance, how people were so drawn to him by how he looked. The Bible also talks about another enemy's appearance multiple times talks about Satan's appearance. Even Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says this, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. I think sometimes we assume our enemy, the devil, is just this red dude with horns and everything that he tempts us with, all his acts just are going to look gnarly and we're going to see them coming from a mile away like Darth Vader or Voldemort. But he likes to use good things. He likes to use gifts of God to pull our hearts from the Lord and into his kingdom instead. And before we know it, we're caught up in a conspiracy opposing God's kingdom. Absalom divided God's people through his conspiracy. And division is such a weapon of our enemy as well. There's a book called The Screwtape Letters written by C.S. Lewis, and it's a satire where demons are corresponding, talking strategies, how to keep people from following the enemy, from following God. And this is one of the excerpts from that book. It says, I am writing to commend you on your most excellent strategy for dividing the body of our enemy, God. They have all but forgotten the admonition of their ancient hero, Paul, to keep their eyes on the goal of knowing the one who causes us such grief. 
you know, now have them debating their differing viewpoints in a tone and tenor that more benefits the way we converse in the pits of our fiery home than in the spacious confines of theirs. During this season, are we keeping our eyes fixed on the one, the author and perfecter of our faith on Jesus? And are we loving and serving one another? Are we not letting this, this time divide the body of Christ, but are we actually coming together more than ever before seeking to love one another selflessly? Or instead, are we taking shots over social media at those who have differing opinions from us, reducing them down to just a meme or a quote? God's kingdom is one of unity, not division. Division belongs to another kingdom, the one of the enemy. David was rejected by the people, but there's a king, a better king, who was rejected by his own people as well. Weeping barefoot, leaving the kingdom that was rightfully his, passing through the Kidron Valley, going to the Mount of Olives, was the course that David took. But this should remind us of a better king who too was rejected by his people. And John, the book of John even records that Jesus passed through the Kidron Valley as well and was betrayed that same night in the, on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he is there, he cries out to God for help to take this cup from me. But yet he surrenders himself to the will of God, acknowledging that God needed to be in control, and he would submit himself to whatever God chose. On his journey to the cross, he's whipped, he's mocked, he's spit upon, similar to what Shimei did to David. And ultimately, Jesus is crucified, becoming a different kind of man of blood than David. David spilt the innocent blood of Uriah. Jesus spilt his own innocent blood for us. Jesus is the King and the Savior that David never could be and that we need. I listened to this really good podcast from a church called The Village Church, Matt Chandler's church, and I'll have Alyssa post it on Facebook, um, on our website too, because it goes over the, these chapters, and I just think it's such um, a good discussion commentary on this passage, and I, I used a lot of it in, in my preparation for this, uh, for this sermon. But the podcast point, pointed out that Absalom was hung on a tree. He was speared, killed, thrown into a pit, and covered with rocks. He ultimately dies the death that our sin and rebellion deserves. Yet here is Jesus dying that same death, hung on a tree, hung on a cross, speared, killed, put into a tomb, thrown in a pit with a stone covering. And yet he's dying for the Absaloms. He's dying for all those in rebellion against him and his kingdom, but offering them the opportunity to place their trust in him and enter his kingdom. David wishes he had died in the place of Absalom, and we see Jesus just do that same thing, that Jesus dies in our place. 
the end of this bigger story. The story we need is one where the true enemies are defeated, the devil and his schemes thwarted, our sins paid for, and death overcome by Jesus. One of the ladies on that podcast put it this way, this story creates a longing. God gives us the whole diagnosis of the human condition and points us to the cure. To end, just a couple ways that we could respond to this passage, to these chapters. And they all kind of are prayers throughout the week. One of the prayers is, God, make me aware of the ways the enemy is trying to steal my heart from you. As frustrations build, as anxiety rises, as depression sets in, as fears or isolation feel like they're all consuming. God, would you help me keep my eyes fixed on you? Would you help me see the ways the enemy is trying to pull me from you and to follow his kingdom ways instead of yours? God, forgive me for falling for the enemy's schemes. Forgive me when, I, when I've just followed my own way, when I've wanted control and I haven't trusted in you. Thanking Jesus for being the Savior that we need, the only one that can truly save us from, from our flesh, from sin, from the enemy and his schemes, from, from this time that we're experiencing now and for eternity. And thanking Jesus for his undeserved love the love that David shows to Absalom, the love that the Father shows to us, not dealing with our sins as they deserve, and the love and life that we receive from him instead through his resurrection. Let's pray. God, we, we look at this passage and there's so, many, so much we didn't even get to, and God, I'm just in awe of all the ways that you, you, you expose us as people for who we really are, for, for us in our fallen state that, re, that rebels against you, that sets up our own kingdoms, and how the enemy loves to manipulate that to lead us further and further from you and your ways and to cause chaos and destruction. Lord, specifically in this time, God, would we be so ready and so diligent of fixing our eyes on you, Jesus, to cling to you, Lord, and as we feel the tug on our hearts, to, to, as our hearts are being stolen from you towards other people, other things that we think maybe could save us or the control that we so badly want back in our lives, Lord, instead would we rest in your embrace as it seems that David does here as everything's crumbling around him. And God, you saw him through. And he knew that even if his circumstances didn't change, you were still his God. And you still loved him. God, help us to, to continually be amazed by your mercy for us. Lord, I just wonder if, if Absalom understood the mercy that David had for him. If things could have been different, God, would, would we not be like Absalom? Just caught all of a sudden, completely helpless in a tree. And no way out. Would we not experience your wrath that way, but instead would we receive grace from you as you invite us into relationship with you day after day, now and for eternity. In your name, amen.